Well, thank you all so much for inviting me out here. It truly is an honor. I gotta say, when uh, my co-host Jacob first told me that I had received a speaking invitation, I almost didn't believe him. But because his sense of humor is so much drier than that, I knew that he couldn't possibly be joking. So, here I am. Gotta be honest, I, I never thought I'd be back in California for any reason other than visiting my family for the holidays. I'll admit, I, I do still miss those rolling fields of the San Joaquin Valley, driving around and seeing all the dairies and family farms. I was born there, raised there, I spent my entire life there. So frankly, I got used to the smell. <laughs> and the bad air quality. <laughs> and the constant dry heat. I, I guess you could say I developed a natural immunity to those things. No masks or vaccines required. But of course, I realized soon enough that if I was to have any future in conservative politics, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of that left here in the ex-Golden State. So I left for pastures that are definitely not greener in the literal sense, but still allowed me to help spread the message. The important message of what the right should be doing right now in the fight to save the country we love. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. When Rick followed up with another email explaining that he specifically wanted me to speak about January 6th, based on a commentary piece I had just written for American Greatness, I cracked those metaphorical knuckles and was like, oh boy, let's do this. So for those of you who don't know, the article in question is titled, Of Reichstags and Bastilles. Truth be told, I, uh, I actually sat on that one for a while, for a few months actually, as I contemplated the weight of what I was saying in that article. I've written some pretty spicy things in the past, believe me, but nothing quite like that one, as provocative and important as that one. And that's the point. And I am truly grateful to my editors at American Greatness for allowing it to be published. I want to give them a shout out. They do fantastic work there, and I especially want to give a huge shout out to someone you may be familiar with. Her name is Julie Kelly. She has done God's work in reporting on the truth about January 6th, the injustice those prisoners have faced, the truth about how the protesters were treated that day and how they've been treated since then talking to the families of the real victims, and so on. Please, check out her work. She's incredible. I called it of Reichstags and Bastilles because we currently live in a society where politicians love to invoke historical imagery as often as possible, more than ever before. January 6th is case in point. We've all heard how many times the Democrats, from Biden to Kamala to Pelosi, have used the most absurd language imaginable to describe January 6th. Kamala, an alumnus of this state, of course, dared to compare it to Pearl Harbor and 9-11, two separate events that resulted in the loss of nearly 3,000 lives each. And she claimed that day would be just as infamous. Biden has repeatedly said that he considers January 6th to be literally the worst thing that has happened to our country since the Civil War. And in a moment of self-awareness, he even said in one speech, and I quote, that's not hyperbole. He admitted that he was not exaggerating. It wasn't another one of those endless gaps in the making. He wasn't just trying to rally up the base or fundraise. He was serious. He believes it. They all do. They believe that those protesters on January 6th were terrorists on par with Al-Qaeda and enemy combatants like Imperial Japan. So why are they doing this? Why do they insist on disgracing the memory of all those who died on December 7, 1941 and September 11, 2001? Well, of course, they say these lies because they want to use it as a pretense to sick the entirety of the federal government on regular, 
law-abiding, tax-paying American citizens whose only crime was voting for Donald Trump. But it's so much more than that. In the long term, it's because January 6th was indeed a very significant and historic day for our country. It was easily the biggest political earthquake since President Trump was first elected on November 8, 2016. And that's because January 6th, quite frankly, was not just about a stolen election. Yes, that was a huge factor and that was the primary motivation, but it was so much more than that. January 6th was truly the culmination, the inevitable outcome of a long train of abuses and usurpations that have been perpetrated against us by the swamp for as long as we can remember. The swamp, of course, includes our political elite, the media class, the federal bureaucracy, academia, Hollywood, Wall Street and big corporations, and international organizations and lobbyists. What all of these groups have in common is that they want to put America last, plain and simple. And for that reason, they all work together in any way they can. I'll come back to that point later. First, I want to cover the prelude to January 6th. These problems have been brewing for years, but 2020 was a perfect summation of everything that the elite has been doing to us. First, of course, you had the coronavirus. In what can easily be described as the single greatest overreaction in human history, the political class brought our entire world to a grinding halt. They demanded, forced upon us, that we shut down our lives. We stopped going to work, stopped making money to provide for ourselves and our families, and also that our children have to stop going to school. And all of us put a halt to our social lives. No more graduations, no more proms, no more weddings, no more family gatherings for the holidays. Countless Americans were kept apart when we needed each other the most, and some never got to see their loved ones again. They took our lives away from us in all but the physical sense, and are continuing their efforts to do so two years later. But they themselves, of course, are allowed to continue living their lives, going maskless to fancy French restaurants and gathering with their families, while the rest of us suffer. And not only that, but they enrich themselves. Remember, several members of Congress from both parties engaged in insider trading and sold off stocks like crazy after receiving a confidential briefing on the coming crash of the market due to the coronavirus. These included another star from our state, Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat, and Kelly Loeffler from Georgia, a Republican. This, again, is a bipartisan problem. They will go out of their way to earn more money off of our suffering and expect to just get away with it. And all this, of course, over a disease that is nothing more than a Chinese knockoff of the flu with a mortality rate of 0.02%. It has taken almost 6 million lives globally in two years, and that is a tragedy. 100 years ago, the Spanish flu took up to 50 million lives in the same amount of time, and that was with a much smaller global population. Just do the math. It doesn't even remotely compare. But over this... They demanded that we shut everything down. And then they had the audacity to claim, in all those stupid, self-righteous, motivational ads and speeches that, oh, we're all coming back from this virus, we can rebuild together. No, 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 we're not coming back from the virus. We're coming back from an arbitrary and artificial crisis of their making. They crashed the economy, they shut down our country, they shut down our schools, and they act like the virus itself is what shut everything down? The only thing worse than that is how far they went to absolutely demonize anyone and everyone who dared to dissent. 
If you aren't lined up like cattle waiting for your sixth vaccine and 17th booster shot, you're a danger to society. Just look at some of the examples. Former HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius said that unvaccinated people should be denied the right to work and denied access to children. The former president of Planned Parenthood, Leanna Wen, who I guess decided to upgrade from being in the company of baby butchers to being in the company of pedophiles by becoming a CNN contributor, she said that life needs to, quote, be hard for people to remain unvaccinated. And of course, Joe Biden, the man who allegedly holds the title of president of the United States, declared that people who raise legitimate questions about vaccines and their side effects are, quote, killing people with misinformation. And I'm sure you all heard about that lovely little column from the rag formerly known as the Los Angeles Times, where columnist Michael Hiltzik wrote that it's, quote, necessary to make fun of vaccine skeptics who die of the coronavirus. The original title is even worse, by the way, which you can clearly see in the article's permanent URL link. Quote, why shouldn't we dance on the graves of anti-vaxxers? End quote. And when people like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to warn us, correctly pointing out that these mandates are already becoming eerily similar to what Nazi Germany was doing, the media went berserk and called her an anti-Semite. Somehow. Meanwhile, Australia was literally setting up decontamination tents in front of private homes with the military deployed to make sure that none of these good little subjects tried to escape or, you know, do the kind of things that free people would do. The arrogance of the ruling class on COVID was only surpassed by their handling of the race riots that marred the second half of 2020. So the facts of the matter, you have a career criminal who liked to point guns into the stomachs of pregnant women, George Floyd. He got arrested after it turned out he was under the influence and acting erratically. The guy was clearly out of his mind. You can see in the body cam footage that was eventually released, he was just sitting in the back of the cruiser with no one touching him, and he was still screaming, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. It's almost like he knew what he was doing. He knew to pretend to be a victim so he could draw a crowd. And unfortunately, that's what he did. More facts of the case, before getting arrested, he downed all the fentanyl that he had on him because he didn't want an additional drug charge. So then, surprise, he dies of a fentanyl overdose while in police custody. The official autopsy confirmed this. The media will say that's fake news. He died of a fentanyl overdose, and that is a fact. But nevertheless, insidious domestic forces determined to start mass race riots in America in order to undermine both the country as a whole and especially the presidency of Donald Trump, promoted that video and used it to deliberately spark outrage all across our country. Over the course of that summer, we saw well over $2 billion in damages, over 2,000 people injured, hundreds of businesses completely destroyed, and at least 25 civilians murdered in the streets by rioters. Entire cities were burned to the ground overnight. Police precincts demolished, courthouses attacked. It was unlike anything we had seen since the race riots of the 1960s. And the culprits were indeed the most radical domestic political actors we have seen in this country since the Civil War. Black nationalists like the Black Lives Matter movement and anarcho-communists like Antifa. These are the real domestic terrorists in America today. At the core of their truly evil ideologies today is the hatred of America. And we saw it in the war on our statues. It wasn't just members of the Confederacy, although those statues absolutely have a right to remain standing, but that's a topic for another day. 
We saw the destruction and vandalism of statues of George Washington, the father of our nation, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, among other founding fathers, as well as the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. Founding fathers' names were removed from schools, campuses all across the country. But as some would say about Watergate, for example, it wasn't the crime that was the most egregious offense. It was the cover-up. Our elite lied about the motives of these riots from the very beginning. They claimed they were simply righteous racial justice protests in opposition to systemic racism, which, of course, does not exist in the United States of America. They then dared to lie directly to your faces by declaring oh, there were no riots. They were occasionally fiery but mostly peaceful protests, according to CNN. One reporter from MSNBC literally stood in front of a giant burning building saying, quote, the protests weren't unruly. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. Please disperse. And when it came to justifying this in the midst of the coronavirus, they managed to convince you that they could eat their cake and have it too. When it was rightfully pointed out that these mass gatherings, these riots, could be super spreader events. Remember that term, guys? You know, the same term they used to shut down all of President Trump's campaign rallies? I kid you not. A group of over 1,000 healthcare experts signed an open letter essentially declaring, oh, no, no, these are okay. You can go to a BLM protest and you won't get COVID. I'm not kidding. CNN reported on this. This is real. They explicitly stated that racism itself is a public health crisis. But in the exact same letter, they explicitly said, don't go to anti-mask or anti-lockdown protests. You will get COVID if you go to those. They even made sure to note, by the way, that these protesters are, quote, predominantly white. Hmm. Why say that? Why does it matter that the anti-lockdown protesters are mostly white? Really makes you think, doesn't it? So the elite created a crisis, used it as an excuse to take all freedoms and livelihoods away from everybody except their foot soldiers who were allowed to rampage throughout the country, take over cities, murder and rape people, and destroy businesses as they pleased, all while either pretending that this wasn't happening or outright voicing their support for it. As we all know, the future vice president of the United States posted a link on Twitter to a bail fund specifically meant to break out the Minneapolis rioters who had just burned a police precinct to the ground the night before. That was an act of violent domestic terrorism, and a United States senator who was running for president at the time was open about her financial support for them. Throughout all of this, let's remember, who was the one person doing the most to push back against these mandates and lockdowns? Who was the one person advocating the most for using the National Guard to crush these riots, but was obstructed at every turn by Democratic governors and mayors? Who was the one person through all this who was fighting for us every single day? Donald J. Trump. So naturally, the elite had to get rid of him, and they stole the election. You here in California know this, of course. I remember the 2018 election cycle here in California very well when they first rolled out legalized ballot harvesting in the state. Remember that? And other schemes. As a sort of practice run for 2020. In that year alone, I lost both my congressman, David Valadeo, and my state senator, Andy Vidak, to these practices. We all know it was stolen because we saw it right here in the former Golden State. So just like that, we have an election stolen from a true American patriot in favor of a man who's only going to accelerate this insanity so that he and his crackhead son can make even more money from foreign business connections. 
We knew back then that he was going to do everything he's doing right now and then some. Which brings me to January 6th. After two previous marches for Trump in November and December, both of which I attended, we had the third and final march. This was set to be the day that Congress would certify the fraudulent electoral count for Biden. And it was one day after we saw a voter fraud strike again in Georgia, when at least one of those two Senate runoff elections was stolen, and that ultimately gave complete control of our government back to the Democrats. House, Senate, White House. Nothing was going to stop them. So here we are. It's a very cold day in January in Washington, D.C., as our elite is about to ceremoniously pat themselves on the back over retaking their government from a populist outsider who, crazy idea, simply wanted to represent the American people. They had just spent a year taking away our lives, allowed terrorists to destroy our cities and murder our people in the streets and get away with it, and then they stole the election from the one man who could have stopped them. So yeah, you'd better believe those millions of patriots who were gathered in our nation's capital on that day were furious. They had every right to be furious, and when they finally came face to face with the physical embodiment of that corruption, our political elite preparing to certify a fraudulent election to reward themselves for the last year of tyranny, those protesters had every right to do what they did that day. Now for the second aspect of January 6th, the people who were there. I was actually there that day, for a while, before I had to go to work, and I spoke with some of the marchers. A group of older, working-class guys from Pennsylvania, a couple of younger guys, younger than me, from Ohio, and others who were all on the same page. We were about to go up against complete tyranny for the next four years, and they were just getting started. But in the time I spent talking to my fellow marchers, I got to see for myself what has since been overwhelmingly confirmed by the media in profiling these so-called insurrectionists. They were predominantly working-class, blue-collar Americans. They primarily came from the Midwest, the South, the Mountain States, the areas often derogatorily referred to as flyover country. They weren't from coastal cities, and many of these people did not come from wealth. For many of them, paying the money for a round trip to Washington, D.C., plus hotel costs and other costs they would incur over a couple days around January 6th, would probably make a decent dent in the money they had to provide for themselves and their families. But they came to D.C. anyway. They were not paid to fly out by foreign billionaires like George Soros, as often happens whenever leftist marchers spontaneously gather in D.C. to protest against guns or to support abortion. These people paid money out of their own pockets to come to the nation's capital, a city many of them had never even been to before, and probably would never come to otherwise, for one very simple reason. To show their support for a president that they loved, because that same president was fighting for them, and they saw that he was about to be removed from office illegitimately. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a truly organic, grassroots movement. No amount of money or nonprofit backing can fake that kind of enthusiasm, that undying, unapologetic passion for one man and the values he represented and still represents. Millions of Americans came out to D.C. not once, not twice, three times in support of President Trump. Those are numbers that would rival any presidential inauguration and certainly outnumbered the Women's March. And let me tell you the most important part for me about each of those three days prior to the actual marches. It was getting on the metro, the subway train before work, when there were entire crowds of these patriots in every station filling up every single car. They all wore their MAGA hats. They had their American flags. None of them were wearing masks. It was truly the most beautiful and the most colorful those stations have looked in a long time, I can assure you. 
It was so glorious to see for just three days that real Americans, working class Americans, Americans from God's country came to that disgusting city that is our nation's capital. And for once, they outnumbered the bureaucrats, lobbyists, consultants, military contractors, congressional staffers, and other swamp rats that normally infest the place. The best part for me was getting on those metros and looking around to see who the actual DC regulars were. Members of the elite who had the misfortune of sharing a metro with Trump supporters. And whenever I saw them burying their faces in their phones or trying so hard to look away and be fascinated by the dark tunnels passing by outside their windows, I could see the visceral disgust on their faces. I could hear them silently saying, Oh, how dare these plebeians come to our city to support the orange man. They were practically holding their breath. They couldn't stand sharing oxygen with people who dared to vote for a man like Donald Trump. But of course, none of these people dared to say anything. Because for once in their empty lives, they were finally completely outnumbered. And believe me, the elites saw that. They saw the millions of patriots who were willing to come to a city like D.C. and show an undying level of support for a sitting president, the likes of which our country has never seen before in modern history. Not Reagan, not Kennedy, not even FDR. The elites understood that even before the first march in November was over. They saw the incredible staying power of the Trump movement and knew that his widespread support, that undying enthusiasm, was not going to go away anytime soon. They had to crush it by any means necessary. So following the events of that day, they immediately began targeting these people, preying upon what could be called naivety, in the sense that these people had, by and large, never before had to deal with federal law enforcement. Remember, these are overwhelmingly good people who had never had criminal records before, and certainly not at the federal level. When it wasn't cases of the feds literally bashing doors in and throwing flash grenades at two in the morning, as documented in such instances as Nick Searcy's movie Capital Punishment, or Tucker Carlson's documentary Patriot Purge, it was feds interrogating the protesters under the guise of just, uh, seeking information. They would frame it as, oh, you're not in any trouble, we just need some help. Many of them, of course, coming from a stance of back the blue, support law enforcement, eagerly agreed to cooperate with them, not even thinking to ask for a lawyer to be present, since they did not know that what they were actually doing was seeking to entrap them by getting them to admit to their crimes. Even more repulsive is the fact that the overwhelming majority of the crowd had no criminal histories whatsoever. And yet, because they dared to protest for a few hours in the elite's castle, they are now being sentenced as if they were domestic terrorists. Some of the victims, including Paul Hodgkins and Anna Morgan Lloyd, were sentenced as part of their punishments, I kid you not, to publicly declare that Biden is the legitimate president, that the election wasn't stolen, that America is a racist nation, and that all their beliefs were wrong. And Jake Angeli that madman who wore the horn helmet, he currently has the worst sentence of all of them. 41 months in the slammer. He was specifically targeted by prosecutors who recommended he serve 51 months in prison. Their reasoning was, and I quote, he became a, a symbol of what happened that day. Not because he assaulted anybody, not because he broke a window or burned anything down, damaged any property, no, 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 no. If you simply come to be recognized as a symbol of what happened, then that means your crimes are by, automatically by virtue the worst. This is truly Soviet-level stuff we're seeing. I'm sorry, last I checked, I thought we won the Cold War. Even worse than that are the handful of January 6th protesters who have already been sentenced to death by their government. 
you probably haven't heard of them. And again, that's because the media won't let you hear about them. But it's true. At least two January 6th protesters have been executed by the government since then. Though not by lethal injection or electric chair. Their names are Christopher Stanton, Georgia, and Matthew Perna. These men, who did nothing wrong on January 6th and were nonviolent, were so torn apart, were so broken down as human beings by the government's nonstop efforts to crush their spirits and destroy their lives, these men were both driven to suicide. Make no mistake, those brave men did not kill themselves. They fought to the very end. The government killed them. Again, most of the protesters had no criminal histories. Quite a few of them, in fact, were veterans, not the least of which was the late Ashley Babbitt, who served 14 years in the Air Force. She swore oath a long time ago to defend her country at all costs, and ultimately, she did end up giving her life to protect this nation. For her sacrifice, she was refused a military burial and has since been slandered as a dead insurrectionist and conspiracy theorist with the most evil, vile, unspoken words about her just dripping from the venomous tongues of so many a serpent in the fake news media, those unspoken words being, oh, she got what she deserved. The left's attempts at profiling the January 6th patriots are obviously for the purpose of demonizing them, as if to throw up a great big marquee declaring, of course they did what they did. Look at what horrible people were there. Two of my favorites here, where the headlines totally speak for themselves. Inc.com says, quote, Why did so many small business owners storm the Capitol? Gee, I wonder why. Again, after a whole year of race riots where hundreds, if not thousands of businesses were razed to the ground by animalistic mobs, and many business owners beaten in the streets for simply trying to defend their property, I can't imagine why small business owners would turn around and direct their rage at the biggest symbol of the ruling class that allowed this chaos and anarchy to happen. And the second, of course, I love this one. Of course, it comes from Salon. Quote, Christian nationalism drove January 6th. Now it's embraced the big lie and wants to conquer America. Ah, uh, yes, Christians, those horrible people. I, I love, by the way, how it adds that Christians want to... Uh, Conquer America. As if this wasn't already our land to begin with. It's not like our nation was founded on Christian values or anything. It's not like most of our founding fathers were Christians. It's not like all of our founding documents make frequent references to our creator with a capital C. Of course not. All this really proves, of course, is that the left feels it is on the verge of finally succeeding in separating America from its Christian roots. And thus they have no choice but to paint the Christians who want to reclaim our founding ideals as some kind of nationalists or insurrectionists. They're not even hiding it anymore. Before I move on to the third and final part of my speech real quick, I have to take just a moment to acknowledge something. Yes, I am well aware of theories and discussions going around that there were federal agents among the protesters and other agitators who infiltrated the crowd, like, you know, Antifa and BLM types disguising themselves in MAGA gear. I am open to debate about that, and we know infiltration is a common tactic of both the far left and the government. I mean, just look at the Gretchen Whitmer case, for example. But the fact remains that a majority of people who were protesting in D.C. that day, and yes, a majority of the people who were peacefully protesting inside the Capitol were Trump supporters. They were American patriots, they were small business owners, they were veterans, they were blue-collar, working-class citizens, they were taxpayers, and they were good people. I would even go so far as to say they were very fine people. 
That, of course, is exactly why the left is bringing down fire and brimstone on these people with no end in sight. To our elite ruling class, those people, and people like you and I, are barely even human beings. We're more like aliens to them. Not the aliens come across the border that are free democratic votes, of course. Like we came from another planet and we have three heads and antennas on our heads. Hence the frequent attempts to other us. We are now ruled by a class that sees their own constituents as subhuman. Not only not deserving representation, but indeed deserving of disrespect and active contempt. That's right, deplorables. And that leads me to the third and final part of my speech. We've covered the prelude, the events leading up to January 6th and why it happened, and we've covered the people who were there, who are now being targeted. So now, let this be the takeaway message. Why? Why they're really so intent on propping up the events of that day as the second coming of the Civil War, the worst terrorist attack in our history, why everyone involved must just be burned at the stake. In the long run, my friends, the elite doesn't really care about the stolen election. They don't care about the Chinese virus. They don't care about so-called racism. All of these things are a means to an end. What the ruling class cares so much about, now more than ever, is one word. Fear. At the risk of sounding like a pretentious DC snob, I am going to take this moment to make one obligatory reference to a political philosopher. Arguably one of the greatest of all time, Niccolo Machiavelli. In his renowned work, The Prince, chapter 17, he addresses the question of whether a leader should choose to be loved or to be feared by his people. He says, quote, The answer is that one would like to be both the one and the other, but because it is difficult to combine them, it is far safer to be feared than loved if you cannot be both. End quote. The leftists try to force everyone to love their figureheads with mm, limited success. They did manage to project a certain level of charisma and pseudo-likability onto Obama as a young, charming black guy who could sing the blues if he wanted to. You know, all fun and games. But they failed miserably to make Hillary Clinton likable. <laughs> and the best they could manage with Biden is, well, uh, he's not as hateable as Hillary, I suppose. Whatever initial good grace Biden may have had after his election, this image as a strangely sympathetic dementia patient and grandpa who means well even if he can't formulate straight words, all that goodwill completely vanished after the fall of Saigon. I mean, excuse me, the fall of Afghanistan. <laughs> Hard to tell the difference sometimes, and I'll bet Joe has trouble telling the difference sometimes as well. He never recovered from that. And if Ukraine is any indication, he probably never will. Even with the backing of every major institution, from Hollywood and big tech to the mainstream media and academia, all the left's men, or should I say gender-neutral persons, cannot put Biden back together again, from a PR standpoint. He will never be loved again. So their only option now is to make people fear him, and through him, fear the entirety of the left. Hence, the unprecedented witch hunt that is targeting hundreds, if not thousands, of regular, law-abiding Americans, all for the crime of having different political opinions, with January 6th being the excuse. This brings me, of course, to a perfect parallel with January 6th, something that, of course, had not happened yet when I was first invited to speak here and when I first started writing the speech. But since it happened, I couldn't have asked God himself to create a more perfect example of another January 6th type event, and never in a million years could I have predicted that, from all people, it would come from our neighbors to the north. The Canadian truckers. 
Here you have another grassroots protest movement, comparable to the Tea Party or the Yellow Vests movement, that is as organic as can be. There's no billionaires funding this. There were no hiring of professional agitators to go out and pretend to be truckers for a few days. That was real. That was a real protest. And just like January 6th, it was not only a genuinely peaceful protest, it was a protest against a very real grievance. Just as it's no conspiracy that they're using vaccine mandates to rob us of our livelihoods, it's no conspiracy that the 2020 election was stolen through mass, systematic, and institutional voter fraud. With both January 6th and the Canadian truckers, the protests happened so fast that the elite in both cases had no idea how to even handle it. In both cases, the elites were forced to run for their lives at the very sight of peasants entering their sacred capital city. On January 6th, Democratic members of Congress were photographed literally hiding under their seats in terror. My favorite is uh, of uh, Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the House Progressive Caucus, crouched behind her desk with her eyes quite literally bugging out of her head in absolute fear. When the truckers first began their occupation of Ottawa on January 23rd to January 22nd, Justin Trudeau literally fled the city. He packed his family up into his Prius or smart car or whatever gay vehicle he probably drives, and he skedaddled out of town like a captain abandoning his ship first. Can I just go on a tangent? I swear. Justin Trudeau, if he's not secretly gay, he's got to be the most effeminate man on the face of the planet. Can we be honest? He makes Francis Emmanuel Macron look like Julius Caesar. I can't stand Justin Castro. I mean, Justin Trudeau, excuse me. When he finally decided to come back, he went all out in trying to label the protesters in any way he could, even if he was literally making things up to do so. He repeatedly claimed that Nazi flags were being waved by the protesters, even though there is not a single photo or video anywhere as evidence of this. He called them every ist and phobe in the book. He called them a fringe minority. He called their views unacceptable. And he called the protests themselves illegal. And of course, one of their favorite words that was thrown around to describe protesters more than anything else, insurrectionists. Then Trudeau declared a national emergency and invoked powers to allow for mass arrests and the suspension of their civil rights. Sound familiar? What happened in both cases is that for a short period of time, the elite's ego was completely and utterly shattered. The Democrats on January 6th and Trudeau with the truckers. They were completely humiliated in front of the entire world by ordinary people. They're never going to live that down, and that's why the peasants have to pay for their crimes against our anointed leaders. But here's the key thing, particularly with regards to fear. It's not just about the fact that our elites want to assure that we, the people, are afraid of them. It's about the fact that they never again want to face a scenario where they, the elite are afraid of us. That's what it's all about, my friends. The elite was terrified of us on January 6th, and they were terrified of us during the Canadian trucker protests. The elite was never afraid of the race riots in 2020. They weren't afraid of Black Lives Matter or Antifa or not even Occupy Wall Street back in the day. Oh, that, that's a flash from the past. They weren't afraid because those were foot soldiers for their agenda. They were all on the same side. Let's just look back at a handful of similar incidents perpetrated by the left, which unfolded very similar to January 6th, but earned quite the opposite reception of the media. First, in June of 2020, shortly after George Floyd's overdose, hundreds of protesters stormed the White House. They actually scaled the fences and assaulted dozens of Secret Service agents. 
Don't remember this incident? That's okay, because the media doesn't remember it either, but they sure do remember the fallout. That was the incident where, as is standard security protocol, President Trump was escorted to the underground bunker for his own safety. Of course, the media's takeaway from this wasn't that the White House was literally attacked by domestic terrorists. It was that Bunker Dawn got scared by protesters. Remember that? Orange man with tiny hands fled to Bunker. What a sissy. Of course, I'm sure if the same thing were to happen tomorrow and hundreds of protesters were to storm the White House and force Biden to be, uh, of course, woken up from his midday nap to go down to the bunker, (laughs) the media would be just as appalled as they were on January 6th. Let's go a little further back to another example in 2018. During a wonderful little something called the Kavanaugh confirmation process, hundreds of protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol and staged a sit-in protest at the Visitor Center and also stormed the office of several members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, including Chairman Chuck Grassley, where they remained for hours. Among the protesters who were arrested were celebrities, including Amy Schumer, who claims to be a comedian, and Emily Ratajkowski, a woman who is literally famous for just getting naked all the time. But they both posted pictures to their verified social media accounts with their fists raised, getting arrested in solidarity with their fellow women or some such nonsense. And then they did it again. Shortly after Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, hundreds more of these drooling freaks tried to storm the Supreme Court building. Remember that footage of them pounding on those huge bronze doors trying to get in? Now, of course, those people were so stupid, they didn't even know that those doors are purely ceremonial and don't actually open. But imagine if they did open. Do you think they would just stop at just getting the doors open? Of course not. They would have stormed the Supreme Court, too, over a vote that didn't go their way. And one more example, just icing on the cake real quick. Way back in ancient history, the year 2011, thousands of protesters, perhaps even more than on January 6th, stormed Wisconsin's Capitol building in Madison while lawmakers were in session conducting their usual business. They went all the way to the legislative chamber and disrupt the session. The protests lasted for four months, from February to June. And uh, what was their grievance in Wisconsin? Was an election stolen with overwhelming proof of voter fraud? Was was there some big corruption scandal in the state government at the time? Mm. They stormed the Capitol and occupied it for weeks because they didn't like Governor Scott Walker's anti-union policies. They stormed their Capitol over a policy disagreement. And uh, were they called insurrectionists or terrorists or traitors? Of course not. In fact, their protests directly led to political action that almost succeeded. The recall attempt against Walker just one year later. He, of course, did ultimately win that election. But this just goes to show that mass protests absolutely can and most likely will lead to the side of the protests, eventually translating that activism into direct political action. The side that gets out in the streets and protests will eventually win at the end of the day. A little side note here, by the way. When I was doing my research for this speech and I was searching for stories summarizing those three examples I just gave, all the top results in Google searches were not straightforward stories covering these incidents. I kid you not, they were fact-checking stories by the media debunking any comparisons between these incidents and January 6th. Funny how it always works out that way, doesn't it? These so-called fact-checkers, these absolute hacks that they are, always swooping out of nowhere to run defense for their buddies whenever the left acts out of line and the right actually calls them out for it. As has been well-documented, all these left-wing movements were as astroturfed as you can get, paid in the millions by the likes of George Soros to just roam from city to city and cause trouble wherever it's needed. 
This, of course, is proof that, yes, unfortunately, the left is vastly superior to the right when it comes to mass organizing. But the few times where the right gets together in a grassroots effort, it's far larger and far more successful. From the Tea Party to the Trump rallies to the March for Life and the marches for Trump after the 2020 election, including January 6th and, of course, the Canadian truckers. When we use their tactics and engage in mass organizing and protesting, we devastate them. Just look at the aftermath of the Canadian trucker protests. Multiple provincial governments, including Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, and Saskatchewan, revoked their various vaccine mandates and other COVID policies in the days and weeks following the protests. If this was really about maintaining draconian laws that force people to get a jab in order to keep their job, or forcing them to wear a face diaper in order to be allowed to go to schools, they would have held the line and kept those policies in place. But they're not. And we're seeing a similar mass rescinding of mass mandates and vaccine mandates all across our country as well. Finally, it's not about restrictions. It's not about mandates. It's about the projection of power. And fear is the key tactic to maintain that projection. But on January 6th, the illusion of our elite being in complete and total control was shattered for just a few hours on that glorious day. And in Canada, the facade of Trudeau having an iron fist on his country was destroyed by a few thousand trucks honking their horns all night long. The elites, above all else, have to maintain that perception of power. Normally, the mainstream media does it for them, but sometimes an event happens that even the media cannot spin. And that's what this is all about, my friends. The politics of fear and who is wielding fear most effectively at any given time. They cannot afford for even a few hours to be seen in fear of the people they are supposed to be ruling over. They do everything they can to cover up the things that would make the average person so angry that they feel the need to get out and protest. They and their lapdogs in the media do nothing but lie, cover up, and obfuscate every single day on the things that matter the most. The things that would make your blood boil like never before. The anti-white racism of critical race theory being forced on our children. The insanity of transgenderism allowing teenage girls to get raped in bathrooms. And of course, the theft of the 2020 election, among other crimes against the American people. All it takes is a large enough portion of the American population being aware of what they are doing to make a difference. On January 6th, hundreds of thousands of Americans were so aware of the election fraud that they flew out to D.C. to protest it. And a few thousand of them went above and beyond to make their displeasure known directly from the halls of Congress. In Canada, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of protesters were aware enough of the systematic and deliberate suppression of vaccine mandates to do something about it. The best hope the elites have is to violently target and destroy those who are responsible for such acts of mass civil disobedience in the hopes of discouraging others from doing the same. But make no mistake, my friends, and I will close on this. They are afraid of us. Even though they have everything in the world on their side and at their disposal, the media, academia, Hollywood, the deep state, Wall Street, big businesses, big tech, the international community and NGOs, and so many others, even with this gargantuan global arsenal, they are still afraid of us if we act up just enough. Machiavelli understood that the key to a stable authoritarian nation is when the people are afraid of the government. I will counter that point with this. A country is only truly free when the government is afraid of the people. Thank you very much and God bless. Thank you. I'm glad you guys like it. Thank you.